Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18. In about 15 minutes, we'll see if people start wandering in, the ones that didn't set their clock. We will make a comment about it when they do. Today we're going to look at one of my, uh, I hate to say favorite parables, but it is certainly one that I quote all the time. So a lot of today's lesson may sound like a repeat because I quote this parable so often. But it is good to have an opportunity to actually take it from the start and work our way through it in a complete lesson. We're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about how often are we, do we, have to forgive other people. Um, I don't know if you've read a book by the title of The Sunflower. It is written by Simon Weisenthal, and it describes his um, experiences in the concentration camp in World War II. He was a Jew. In fact, uh, if you don't know who he is, he spent most of his life after the war tracking down Nazis. That's what he did. The book itself is actually pretty short. That's the book. The rest of this is commentary about the book. The basic story is this. He was assigned to a work detail. He was, a, he was in the medical field somehow, and he was assigned this work detail. And he was summoned to the side of an SS officer that was dying. He was told to go to this man. And the man confessed to him the atrocities that he had committed against this Jewish community. And he wanted Simon Weisenthal to forgive him before he died. He knew he was going to die, and he wanted forgiveness. And Simon Weisenthal wouldn't do it. He left the room and left the man to die. And the discussion is this. In the Christian community, and this is Simon Weisenthal's discussion, in the Christian community, we are obligated to forgive people. According to him, and I do not know enough Jewish theology to know, but according to him, Jews are under no such obligation. This SS officer had not earned forgiveness, and it would not be given to him on his deathbed. Now, as I said, I don't know whether that's an accurate presentation of Jewish ethical systems. I assume he knows what he's talking about. It is a proper representation of a Christian ethical system. And that's what we're going to look at today. Picking up in verse 21 of chapter 18 of the book of Matthew. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. You have the picture. Someone does something wrong to you. They said, ooh, I'm sorry, please forgive me. You forgive them. And they do the exact same thing over again. And again, and again, and again. How many times do I have to forgive them? According to most Jewish scholars of this time, the proper answer is three. You have to forgive people three times. It is interesting where that comes from. 
Job chapter 33, verse 29 and 30, it says, God does all these things to man, twice, even three times, to turn back his soul from the pit, that the light of life may shine on him. And here we have the idea of God helping people three times. Amos, two passages in Amos, they are parallel passages to each other. They simply say, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Damascus, or the bottom one of Israel, even for four I will not turn back my wrath, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. The idea that the Jewish scholars, the Jewish theologians had developed was that you had to forgive people three times. After that, they were on their own. So Peter comes to Christ and says, I'm willing to forgive people seven times. So obviously I am so much better, I am so much better than the rest of the Jewish community. You could kind of sense that he had a certain pride in this position that he was taking. Master, how many times do I have to forgive someone? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. What Jesus said is if you can count it, you've got the wrong attitude. If you're keeping count of how many times you have forgiven someone, you have the wrong attitude. And then he begins a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. This man owed the master 10,000 talents. Now, if you have an NIV, you look down there on the footnote and it said 10,000 talents is millions of dollars. Now, I got curious about that. You do know that those notes down at the bottom, they are not part of the inspired words, so I can criticize those. I whipped out my calculator. I am a math major, by the way. 10,000 talents. What is that really worth? A talent is 75 pounds of gold. Now, different areas of the Middle East had different weights. This is kind of an average probably what was being used in Israel at this time. 75 pounds of gold. Can somebody tell me what gold is selling at today? On the website I went to last night, it was $1,416.93 per ounce. It's really up. You must follow this stuff. So, you take 10,000 talents times 75 pounds, times 16 ounces to the pound, times $1,416.93, and you end up with $17 billion. I don't know where they got this millions. <laughs> Two years ago. <laughs> That's true. I hadn't thought of that. I, I need to redo this calculation. Just to give you an idea, uh, the mayor of New York City is 
Blumenthal, he is worth $18 billion. He is the 10th richest man in the country. We're talking a lot of money here. <laughs> a lot of money. But let me give you another way of calculating this. A talent is also worth 6,000 drachmas, or as we're going to see in a moment, denaries. A drachma is basically a day's wages for an average worker. That was what they could be expected. The average worker today in America makes $188.40 a day, according to my World Almanac that I looked at last night. So, if you take 10,000 times 6,000 days wages times $188.40, you end up with only $11 billion. I don't care how you calculate it, it's a big sum of money. And this is what the servant owed the master. He couldn't pay it. How could you possibly pay it? You can get into a long discussion of how he got into that much debt to begin with. You have to assume that he was somehow misusing or mismanaging the master's funds to get into this big a hole to begin with. So what does the master do? Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, I don't know what slaves went for at this time period. That wasn't in my world almanac. But I do know you're probably not going to recoup $17 billion by selling a man, his wife, and his children and all that he had. But you do send a warning to those who want to misuse the master's funds the next time. This is actually um, not that odd of a situation. We think it's odd today because we don't have slavery. We don't believe in putting people into debtor's prison. But the idea was if I'm going to sell you into slavery, um, I'm going to motivate you to drum up money that maybe you have hidden somewhere that you can apply to this debt. If I throw you in prison, you and your family and friends are heavily motivated to raise the funds. But irregardless, they're not going to raise $17 billion. Let's keep reading. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now, my observation, this is my observation, okay? That's a lie. At best, it is an optimistic, uh, rose-colored view of the future. He is telling the master, give me time, and I will figure out how to get you your 10,000 talents back. So he is begging the master for time. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled his debt, and let him go. He took pity on him. This isn't justice. This is mercy. This isn't giving the man what he is owed. It is giving him what he does not deserve. It is mercy. 
Because of the compassion that the master had on the servant, the master forgave the debt and let it go. Okay? Enter Act 2. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, once again, if you look at the footnote at the bottom, it says that's a few dollars. Well, I would contend that it's a little more than a few dollars, but it is, uh, in relative terms, it's minuscule compared to the $17 billion that was owed to the master. This is probably about 100 days' wages. So if you look at $188 a day, that's $18,000. Okay? It's not nothing, but it's not $17 billion. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Why was he so forceful in his demand for the money? Did he really think he was going to pry $17 billion out of this individual so he could repay the master? Probably not. He was probably just greedy. Let's keep going. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Now, this servant probably does stand some chance of paying back the money that was owed. Unlike the original servant and his relationship with the master who didn't have a chance in the world, this servant could have paid the money back. But... He, the first servant, refused and said he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. Threw him into prison, debtor's prison, until the debt was paid. Once again, this is odd to us, but it shouldn't be. You say, well, if the guy's in prison, how is he earning money? If he's in prison, his family is motivated to dig up some money. That's the point where you start going to the neighbors and you start, you know, getting a denarii here and a little bit there and a little bit there to collect the money. It's all about proper motivation. We don't do this anymore. Probably a good thing. Okay? He refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master, everything that had happened. So we have the one servant that owed the 10,000 talents. We had another servant that owed 100 denarii. But there were other servants. There were other servants that had watched this entire event. They had seen the mercy, and then they had seen the justice. They had seen servant number one demand justice from servant number two even though servant number one had received nothing but mercy from the master. So they went and told the master. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. When the master begins the conversation, you wicked servant, you know you're in trouble. If you go into your performance appraisal at work, and your boss says, you wicked employee, you know something's wrong. 
I was accused of being evil on Friday, not by someone at work, but one of the students in the class I teach accused me of being evil because I gave him an assignment over spring break. <laughs> oh, well. You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And there's the question of the day. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. We're not selling him into slavery now. We're not putting him into debtor's prison now. We are going to torture him until he pays. Now, from the earlier observation, how long is that going to take? It is called eternity. Hmm. Not a pretty picture. Not a pretty picture at all. Handed him over to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. That's the story. Now we get the punchline. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. We're not talking here about money. We're not talking here about owing 10,000 talents or 100 denarii. We're talking about giving forgiveness, giving mercy to other people. And Christ ends the story by simply saying this. This is how you will be treated. Okay? How is the this? What is the this? Hand it over to be tortured until you can repay the debt. Shall we have a show of hands? How many view this as a loving picture of God? We better not have a show of hands. Was this fair of the master? He had forgiven him the debt, and then he put it back. Was that fair? Hmm. He reaps what he sows. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Very simple passage. But sometimes we look at that passage and we go, oh, that means that in order for me to receive mercy from God, I have to do something. I have to work. I have to give mercy in order that I can, in fact, receive mercy from God. The problem with that is it sounds backwards from what we understand the rest of the New Testament to be teaching us. And in fact, this parable clearly shows us that it is backwards. <laughs> yes, ma'am. It sounds like works. It sounds like works, but it's not. Why not? 
Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Sounds like I've got to do something. The problem with that is that we misunderstand who started this chain of mercy. Who was at the beginning? In the parable, we clearly see that the first person to show mercy was the master. The master began the process. The master forgave the debt that could not be paid because the man begged for forgiveness. Mercy always begins with God. But having started there, there is the expectation that we will then, in turn, show mercy to others to recognize, to acknowledge the fact that we were recipients of mercy in the payment of a debt that we could not pay to begin with. If we don't understand that, then we are not in a position to distribute mercy to those around us. Why? Because we still think somehow we're coming out with the short end of the deal. What did the first servant tell the master? Give me time and I'll repay the debt. And I made the comment, that's a lie. That's a lie. We have an individual who has lived their life Let's not, I mean, let, let's, let's not say they're child-molesting, murdering psychopaths. Let's just say they're normal 21st century Americans. They have lived their life, and at some point they come to a church. And they are exposed to the message of the New Testament. And they sit there and think, okay, I have sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. God, give me 20 years, and I will make up. I will pay back the debt that I owe. Just give me time, and I'll do it. And God comes along through the Holy Spirit and works in this person li person's life and says, You know what? You're a sinner. You were born a sinner. You'll die a sinner. You can't do it. You cannot pay enough. You cannot do enough to pay the penalty that your sin deserves. But you know what? I, this is God speaking, and I'm putting words in God's mouth. I, God, will forgive you because of what Christ did for you. And you go, great, Whew, I'm off the hook. We're sitting there, we're in church, the pastor's talking about the gospel, this is the good news. And somebody sits there and says, that's good news, I'm off the hook. But in the back of their minds, they still believe, I could have done it. I could have taken care of that. I'm just off the hook. I've told the story in here frequently of, when my father was alive, we would go out to dinner, to lunch. He would call me up and say, you want to go out to lunch? And I'd say, sure. 
I always liked going out to lunch with my dad because he always paid. <laughs> now, the reality was I had a job. I could have paid, but I didn't have to pay, but I could have paid. So I'm saying thank you to my father for buying me lunch. But in reality, in the back of my mind, I know if he hadn't have bought me lunch, I would have bought lunch on my own. It's not like I was starving and had no resources and didn't have any food. No, it was just pleasant that he paid for lunch. And sometimes that's how we approach our Heavenly Father. It's nice that he bought our lunch. It's nice that he sent Christ to die for our sins. But you know what? We're not as bad as the guy next door. I mean, you should see his life. I'm sorry, the guy that lives next door to me is pastor of our church. But, uh, <laughs> but do you get the idea? The problem with the first servant is the first servant did not realize the hole that he was in. He did not realize the depth of the debt that he could not pay. And since he didn't realize that, when someone owed him a relatively minuscule amount, he was not willing to show mercy to them. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, okay? Because I know, I know there's a theological problem with what I'm about to say. But here it is anyway. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by our works. But this passage is telling us, if we say that we are saved, notice that I didn't say we were saved. If, I, if we say that we're saved, and we go out and we refuse to show mercy to those around us, God is not going to say at those pearly gates, well, that's okay, it's no big deal. He's going to say, you didn't accept the mercy that I gave you, and that was indicated by your refusal to show mercy to those around you. Your refusal to demonstrate mercy is an indicator that you have not received the mercy that was offered you. And if you have not received the mercy, the end result is not heaven. The end result is everlasting torment to repay the debt that you cannot pay. I am not saying that we are saved by showing mercy to those around us. We are saved by the mercy that God has bestowed upon us. The indicator that we have received it is our willingness to show mercy to those who owe us something. And remember, big debt, little debt. And that is the problem most of us that I have. Somebody that owes me a dollar, that's big. 
because they owe me. Somebody that I owe a dollar to, that's no big deal. That's their dollar. They're in trouble. We have a different perspective. When someone does something bad to me, I don't want to give them mercy. I want justice. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I usually want more than justice. I want to get them. And Christ says, no, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. And if you persist in doing that, it demonstrates something about you. This is a hard passage for me. It is a hard passage because at the end of the story, the master appears ruthless. But what it is, is the first servant demanded justice from the second servant. So God says, you want justice? I'll give you justice. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. What does God owe us with regard to justice? Penalty. Payment for sin. That's what justice demands. Don't ever go to God and say, God, I demand justice. God is a just God. Justice will win out in the end. The right will be made right and whole in the end. Justice will win. But fortunately for us, like the master and the first servant, God has pity on us and shows us not justice, but mercy and compassion. Another Holocaust story. Corrie Tin Boom and her sister were sent to the concentration camp. Her sister died in the concentration camp. Corrie survived. Went on to be, write books and become a world-famous speaker. And she was at a talk one day and had finished her presentation, had finished her talk, and people were lining up to shake her hand and talk to her after the meeting. And she looks up, and there is a man waiting to shake her hand. And she recognizes him. He is the guard at the concentration camp that she and her sister were in. And the man sticks out his hand to shake her hand. And she relates that all of these thoughts were running through her head. God, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. And she said at that moment, all God told her was, stick out your hand. And she did. And the man went on to tell her about becoming a Christian and about his changed life. I don't understand Jewish theology. I don't claim to know, understand the ethical system. I do know that if I had been in a concentration camp with my family and had seen my family die, had seen my people die by the millions, 
I would be pretty perturbed, okay? I would have a difficult time forgiving people. Nothing, nothing, nothing in any of this is in any way to imply that forgiving people when they have truly harmed you is an easy thing. Nothing is to imply that. But all we are commanded to do is to extend our hand to give others the same mercy that God has given us. How do we learn to do this? We learn to do it by remembering. Remembering what we were before Christ saved us. If you remember back and you think, you know, I was a pretty good guy. I wasn't as bad as, and fill out your list of other people. I wasn't as bad as them. I was better than most. I loved my dog. I loved my cat. I was pretty good to my children. I was okay. Then you are not going to understand the depths of the mercy that God has bestowed upon you. But when you understand that I was living a life of rebellion against God who created the universe and by right runs the universe, and I was living a life of rebellion against him, and I had no right to claim anything from him, yet in mercy he bestowed mercy on me. In pity he bestowed mercy on me. Then all of a sudden, that few dollars that somebody owes you doesn't look like that big a deal. A heart that refuses to show mercy is a heart that has not recognized its need for mercy and thus has not received mercy. That's not entirely true. We all receive mercy. We talk about God's common grace that he bestows upon all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The crops of the unjust profit from the same rain that the crops of the just profit from. And that is God's common grace. We have all received mercy. We just don't recognize that we've received mercy and that recognition is the sign, that lack of recognition is a sign of a hardened heart. What does it say? This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Whew. Not just, okay, I forgive you. I don't know about you, okay? You know, my kids have gotten into squabbles, and I say, you know, go forgive them. Okay, I forgive them. And somehow, some way, you don't really think that this is being done from the heart. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the rolling eyes. I don't know. But you don't think this is being done from the heart. The heart is, in biblical terms, the center of our mind, will, and emotions. It is the center of who we are. That's where you have to forgive. It isn't just, okay, I'll say the words. Is that easy? No, 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 no. But we love a God who is in the habit of transforming hearts of stone 
into hearts that can in fact do that if we will let him do it. We are to forgive those around us from our heart. I will make this as obvious as I think it should be. For Christians, this is not an option. Now, at this point, I will throw in a caveat, though. If someone borrows $100 from you and doesn't pay you back and asks for forgiveness, you are to forgive them. If they ask for another $100 and you give it to them and they, they don't pay you back and they ask for forgiveness, you forgive them. If they ask you for another $100, you don't have to give them another $100. But you do have to forgive them. You can't let the bitterness blind you and destroy you. But that doesn't mean that actions don't have consequences. If someone breaks into your house and steals your possessions and are, is arrested and is sent to prison and they ask to see you, and they apologize for what they did, you have to forgive them. But it doesn't mean they get to go out of prison. There are penalties for our sins. They still have to suffer the consequences. Sometimes we think if I'm forgiving you, I'm pretending that it didn't happen. No, it did happen. But I am out of pity giving mercy to you. My heart is such that it will not hold bitterness toward you for what you have done to me. We can have a whole lengthy discussion about what if they don't ask for forgiveness. We're not going to go there. It's a great discussion, though. And finally, remember from Matthew 5, chap chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed, happy are those who do this. We talk about this. All this lesson has been about God showing us mercy. Therefore, we show mercy to others. The truth is, life is too short to go around being bitter and angry at everyone around you. Being merciful toward people produces mercy back toward us, even in the earthly sense. Life is too short to be bitter because you perceive that you didn't get your way. I don't know the condition of every relationship in your life. I have trouble with all the relationships in my life. I do know that I've read articles, lots of articles, about siblings who fought at some point in their life and 30 years later they haven't talked to each other in 30 years and nobody really knows why anymore. It's just bitterness. It's a lack of forgiveness. It's a, you cut me off in traffic and I am going to damn you to the lowest circles of hell. Why? Why? Because we believe we are the center of the universe and you have done me wrong. You're not the center of the universe. 
And he who is the center of the universe has forgiven you a debt that you will never, ever, ever repay. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the mercy that you have shown us. I pray, Lord, that we would take that mercy and communicate it to a world that is desperately in need of your love and your mercy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.